I'm Aaron Fowler and welcome to another episode of the Disability Sports Podcast. My guest this week is Kerren Seal. He has played over 100 times for the England blind football team and is a former captain of the side. In this episode, Kerren talks about his distinguished playing career and his recent move into coaching with Brighton and Hove Albion and the Indian blind football team. Here is the interview and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Karen, and uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, hey, Aaron. Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Just uh, just sipping my uh, my morning coffee. I'm not normally up this time on a Sunday, so, uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully, I'll be coherent for you. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, getting up early to, to join us. Um, first question I should probably ask you, I know you're a proud Welshman, so uh, what did you make of Wales's uh, performances in the World Cup? Oh, um, where do we start? Um do you know, I, I was really disappointed after the Iran game and partly after the England game. Um, and it's not normally my attitude of, oh, it's just nice to be there. But after growing up in the 90s and seeing all the horrible performances Wales teams have put in, I can sort of look back on it and go, well, we were there and we've got a real good chance of qualifying for, for 20 years. So, yeah, it's great to be part of you know the game had moved on our players weren't in form and they weren't match fit so few disappointments but ultimately pride that we were there I mean, Wales have done well uh, since 2016 but obviously some of the players like Bale Ramsey uh, Joe Allen you know maybe getting on a little bit do you think uh, you know Wales have got enough good youngsters coming through that they can continue to sort of qualify for the next few major tournaments? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's a real good crop of youngsters coming through. And you've got like Svali Cooper at uh, Swansea, Jordan James at, um, at Birmingham, uh, the young boy Harris at, at Fulham, not to mention people like David Brooks coming back and uh, and uh, Brennan Johnson coming through, Nico Williams. And, and the fact that Bale and Ramsey, you know, they're only like 33 and 32. Joe Allen could probably go for another six or seven years. He just got an injury before the tournament. So, yeah, I think... Yeah, I think I think the future is fairly bright, to be honest. Good. Now, um, you've come on the podcast to obviously predominantly talk about your uh, footballing career. So um, I just want to start off um, kind of from the beginning, really, um, and just ask you a little bit about uh, your sight loss journey. So um, can you tell us a bit about when your sight loss journey began? Um, you know, were you blind from birth or did you lose your sight later in life? Yeah, sure. So I was um, I was born visually impaired, but it wasn't really picked up until I was kind of um, sort of two and a half. Mum just kind of realised that you know I probably wasn't developing or picking things up uh, as quickly as as other kids, and yeah, they was just diagnosed that I had a, a retinal condition, um, so a problem with the back of my eye. Uh, it was essentially just sort of bleeding on the back of the retina, which just meant that my my vision was uh, was was kind of distorted and, and more impaired than others. Um, so yeah, I was born visually impaired and I lost my sight totally uh, at the age of 20 after a kind of rapid sight loss over a, over a short short period of time. Um, but in, in that kind of intermittent period of that, I played loads of, loads of different sports. Um, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of VI sport until I was 16. So I grew up playing uh, cricket, rugby, football. Um, athletics, all with my side peers, not not terribly well. I was fairly <laughs> horrible at most of them, but I enjoyed playing them. And uh, yeah, sort of pretty much grew up on on team sport, um, playing with my side peers. And what was your favourite sport growing up? Um, I think I I think that football was always my favourite sport, probably to watch growing up, um, but to play. I always love playing cricket, whether that be sort of, you know, in a in a school team very briefly or actually just in the street using the wickets as a bin, uh, using the bin as a wicket, um, playing with my friends at street cricket or, or rugby at school as well. And again, I played rugby till about the age of 12, 13, um, fairly averagely, but I love being part of that. And obviously growing up in South Wales, rugby is a huge part of, uh, of culture and life there. So... So, yeah, I think it was a toss-up between cricket and rugby to play and to watch it was football. I was going to say, I don't think it's uh, possible to be Welsh and not like rugby, is it? No, exactly. But when I was growing up in that, in that time, Wales, Wales were really awful. So it was definitely more fun to play than it was to watch. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, growing up, who was your who were your sporting idols? Um, yeah, a mixture really. As a growing up as an Arsenal fan, uh, my my the first player I remember just loved watching and just sort of wanting to emulate and idolise was Tony Adams. Um, that sort of you know that sort of old school British war horse of a defender uh, popped up with important goals, leader, all that stuff. You know, like I loved Tony Adams. And then later on, people like Dennis Burkham, Patrick Vieira. Uh, and then when it came to cricket, you know, it was that in that kind of 90s era where I loved watching Shane Warne bowl um, and, and sort of people like Steve War and Mark War bat. So, yeah, it was in that kind of era of Australian dominance. So, yeah, those, those are the kind of people I, I wanted to emulate when I was playing. And what was it that led you to becoming an Arsenal fan? Um just by chance, really, just by sort of, um, it was only in the early 90s, um, I really got into football um, and just remember seeing Arsenal play in a, an FA Cup final. And it was the one where they um, they beat Tottenham and Tony Adams scored like a like a header in the last sort of 10 minutes or so. Uh, and just just seeing that that team, that red shirt, you know, so Tony Adams doing his stuff. Um, I just kind of sort of fell in love with the fact that nobody else liked them. Um, and they, they were defensive and boring, but they just cracked on with it. And I think it was that ethos that, uh, that I kind of fell in love with, really. It was a hell of a defence that Arsenal had, wasn't it, with uh, the likes of uh, Adams, you know, Keogh, Dixon, Winterburn and things like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that back four was Seaman, Dixon, Winterburn, Keogh and Adams, chucking Steve Bowles and uh, Andy Linnigan there as well. And yeah, it was a really, really great back four. Um, so you mentioned earlier that um, you didn't start playing uh, vision impaired sports until you were uh, about 16 um, how did you first uh, find out about vision impaired sports and what were the first VI sports that you uh, played oh, I, I found out about VI sports purely by chance and accident my mum was working in uh, in Bridgend as an estate agent and she sold her house to a to a guy who was uh, visually impaired a chap called Andy, Andy Fisher who's been quite instrumental in a lot of um, you know a lot of VI sport in in South Wales and, and Bristol in the in the in the eighties nineties and the two thousands, um, but and my mum met Andy and he, she, he was telling her he was visually impaired and she got talking about me and then he said oh you know we, we run a football cl- club does he play football um, and she's like well, yeah he loves football and so sort of mum mum took me down to a uh, I think the first introduction was a, a tournament that, uh, like a national league tournament that was actually being played in in our hometown, which was um, quite quite unusual. So, yeah, I went down. I was a 16-year-old kid playing with all these um, blokes never never met before. And suddenly it was like, oh, I can I can play this sport and I don't have to struggle with it. Because, you know, when I was playing 11-a-side, sighted football, yeah, I was, I was by no means the best player. And if I was not on the bench, I was doing well. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, uh, so, like, actually being thrust into visually impaired sport, albeit against sort of grown men, it was like, oh, I'm, I'm not as bad as I thought I was. So, um, so yeah, that was that was my first introduction to it. And playing for the South Wales Dragons visually impaired football team. And then that club also had a, a cricket team. So I um, I uh, was brought into that team by uh, by Neil Pryor again when I was sort of 16, went to a um, like a national festival tournament in Preston. Like they don't hold that anymore, but that was a really great 15-over tournament. Um, and again, sort of playing all this festival cricket over the course of a weekend and traveling away with blokes, you know, seeing people drink pints and, you know, all that, all that, all that fun <laughs> stuff as well. Um, and yeah, I was, I was hooked on that as well. So yeah, cricket and uh, cricket and football through the same club when I was 16. So it was like a real baptism of fire. I'm really, really glad I found it by, by chance. And uh, with the football you played, uh, for obviously anyone who's listening that isn't aware, obviously there are uh, two forms of, of football for vision impaired people to play. There is uh, sort of uh, blind football or B1 football, uh, and then there is uh, the partially sighted uh, futsal as well. Um, which did you first start playing? The partially sighted football, the B2, B3 stuff. And I played that yeah from, from 16 up until the point where I, uh, where I lost my sight. Uh, very... <laughs> Very average player, but I sort of played played reasonably well for the uh, Southwest Dragons teams. Then then into Cosmos, and then we formed our own team in the Southwest. Then um, went to a couple of England trials um, when uh, the great Tony Larkin was head coach. But I was by no nowhere near good enough to break into that uh, that England VI team at the time. But uh, yeah, still really fun times and fond memories from them. 
you can't have been bad though to have trials with England. I mean, uh, you know, I played partially sighted football myself, and you know, some of the lads that play in England team are you know on another level. So uh, you got to be pretty good to even uh, be in the mix. So uh, oh, I don't know. I think they just held those trials the day after a national league tournament. And it was uh, like if you want to if you want to have a go, to have a go. I think it was like that. But I went I went and had a go, and I was rubbish. But I was, <laughs> I, was, I, was I was I was an okay club player. I was okay. Well, well, if it's any consolation, I'll probably play for the worst team that I've ever played in the National Party Sighted Futsal League for Hampshire. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that kind of make, takes me back to my kind of days playing 11 aside. So I played for a bottom of the league team in like a uh, Welsh, uh, South Wales, South Wales League. And like if we lost by less than six, we were doing well. <laughs> it sounds very familiar. <laughs> oh, Character building, exactly. <laughs> you play purely for the love of the game when you look exactly, when you exactly. Yeah, just get yeah. out of the house. <laughs> um, so, when did you start playing blind football? Uh, 2005. Um, I was introduced again purely by chance, really. I, I was playing blind cricket at the time, so I played blind cricket um, for England in between 2002 and 2007. Um, 2005, um, my friend Chris Dade, who who played for the England partially sighted team and studied at RNC uh, in Hereford, um, just kind of said to me, he said, oh, um, Tony Larkin, the head coach, the grandfather of blind football in this country, he said, oh, Tony's just said somebody's pulled out the England squad. Um, do you want to play football? Because I'd, I'd played with Chris as a partially sighted player and I'd coached him as well when he was really young. And he was like, um, I was like, I've not really kicked a ball as a blind person, but but go on. And so like Tony phoned me up about five minutes later, said, Oh, we've, we've got a training camp in Hereford tonight. Do you want to come? And so I literally got on a train like two hours later and I was, um, I was sort of having dinner with people like Darren Harris and Dave Clark and sort of thinking, Oh my God, how am I going to, how am I going to do tomorrow? So it was kind of case of sink or swim. And luckily I just about kept my head above water, but I was awful, awful player to begin with because I had all my bad habits from sight football and had to adapt. But yeah, 2005 was my first introduction to the game. So how did you find that adjustment um, from being someone who had played football with, uh, obviously, uh, you know, the, the site that you had, to then obviously when you lost your site, you know, playing football for the first time without being able to, you know, see anything? How, how did you adapt? Mm, it was tricky and it was frustrating. Um, again, I'd never been a great technician as a footballer, as anybody will know who ever watched me as a partially sighted player will know. But um, I had to adapt, you know, like, you know, blind football, that you, it's all about close control and being able to dribble and manipulate the ball. And I had that habit of just only dribbling with one foot, having the ball out in front of you a lot. So it was about sort of adapting those skills, practicing those, breaking it down. And also when you come to shoot, pass, you know, not having a great big back lift, um, you know, because it affects your balance because, you know, football is predominantly a one-legged sport. Whatever you're doing, you're doing it on one leg generally. Um, and yeah, and again, obviously, the, the adaptation of spatial awareness, again, which was which was alien to me because I've been playing cricket, which was out out in the wide open spaces or just fielding a short leg. Uh, but when you, when you bring that into a five-a-side court that's 40 by 20 and you've got other blind people running around at full speed in there it's that that sort of spatial awareness of how do I move how do I find the side of the pitch how do I move around all these players without sort of coming into into great big huge collisions so for me it, that adaptation period probably took a good two and a half years really. And you mentioned there obviously the importance of spatial awareness are there any other skills that you think you are more important as a blind footballer than perhaps say you know uh, in uh, regular football world yeah that you know that are yeah, more important for a player to have I, I, it's probably obvious to say because it's blind football but listening and, and that listen the listening aspect of communication is the most important thing because you've got so many stimuli within that game like if you're a sighted player or a partially sighted player you kind of take in bits of information unconsciously but as a blind person, that concentration to be able to take in information from your coach, your fellow players, your goalkeeper, uh, the opposition, as well as listening to the ball and performing your skills takes a great deal of concentration. Obviously, the fitter you are, the better your concentration. Um, and But your listening has to be absolutely incredible because you just need to be able to process those bits of information then act accordingly uh, within a split second. So the game has moved on to a hell of a speed now and I'm to the point where I'm glad I'm not playing internationally anymore so I feel like how, am I, how would I do deal with this because like tactically and, and technically it's really moved on but yeah I think 
that spatial awareness, the communication, the listening aspect of communication, and being able to process those things are really important uh, and probably supersede any kind of technical ability, especially in that in that early period of playing. And I, I think a lot of people are a lot more familiar with blind football now, especially uh, you know after London twenty twelve <clears throat> Paralympics. And for anyone who's listening who isn't familiar with uh, how the game's played, can you just briefly um, explain the rules? Yeah, sure. So um, blind football is a five-a-side sport. Uh, the goalkeepers are fully sighted. Um, the ball has metal ball bearings in it that make a noise. So as long as the ball's moving, uh, it rattles. Uh, we have a coach outside the halfway line and a coach behind the goal that we're attacking called the guide. And the pitch is 40 metres by 20 metres. Um, and down each side of the pitch, there's um, slanting kickboards, which keep the ball in play and also help the players to kind of uh, locate themselves by using spatial awareness and that kind of audio rebound that you get off those boards. Uh, but the ball goes out for goal kicks, throw-ins. Um, and the only other adaptation to that as a form of football is when players go in to make a tackle or go for a loose ball or 50-50, they have to shout the word voy, which is a Spanish word that means I go or I'm here. Um, and it's to keep the game safe, but also to stop people like me from sneaking up and smashing you from behind. <laughs> um, and you mentioned obviously about the two coaches, uh, one on halfway and one behind the goal. Um, what are the uh, instructions that uh, and sorts of things that they would uh, perhaps shout out to the players? So the, the coach behind the the guy behind the goal um, is is really crucial, uh, especially in the sport now where the game has moved on uh, tactically and and speed wise and technically. So that coach will be you know as, can only talk when you get into the attacking third, so around thirteen meters out, and he or she will be giving you information like there's two in front or you know come out switch the ball um, or you've got one to beat finishing though just really quick succinct bits of information um about where you are and what the best course of action is but ultimately they're just giving you a voice to hit because you know you you know as a, as a line player if, if i can go left or right of that coach behind the goal's voice i'll be going somewhere to get in that ball in the corner of the goal um and then get a, if you've got free kicks or corners They'll begin again giving sort of information about how the wall set up, what the best course of action will be, uh, and then down to the player to make the choice. And then the halfway line coach, which is usually the head coach, um, will again just be giving information to the players about their depth on the pitch, um, where to go press, when not to. Very similar to to you know to a head coach in a sighted or partially sighted game. Um, just again, succinct bits of information about which pass is on, which pass isn't. Um, just just helping them paint the picture essentially, and and the goalkeeper will be doing the same from from their third also. And you mentioned earlier about how you first became involved with uh, training with the uh, England blind football team. So uh, when and where did you make your debut? Yeah, so I made my debut. I think I, my first camp was in May of two thousand and five, and I made my debut in September of two thousand and five uh, in Porto, in Portugal. Um, which was, it was a really weird pitch. Um, it was like chain fence on one side, and then on the other side, it was like a, a wall that was about 18 inches high with a sort of big metal rail on it. So you'd never be able to play on that kind of pitch now as an international <laughs> standard. But we played a, a three team tournament against uh, Portugal and Spain. Uh, I just remember being wowed by, you know, obviously our own players, but some of the Spanish players as well, and thinking, oh my God. That's what I want to be like. That's what you know. One of one of you know. That's one of my uh, sort of ambitions is to emulate this Spanish guy here, a guy called Jose Lopez, who was brilliant off both feet, skinning people left, right, and centre. Um, and yeah, we we went we won that tournament uh, on a penalty shootout, beating Spain in the final. Um, and I actually scored a winning penalty, which is again bizarre for anybody who's seen my penalty record in recent <laughs> years. Uh, will be will be wondering why I couldn't keep that up. But um, but yeah, that was uh, that was an incredible experience playing in Porto. Brilliant, and and that must have been an, an incredible experience, you know, to sort of score the winning penalty in your first uh, you know tournament. Uh, yeah, it sounds it must have been an amazing feeling. Um, how did your international career, you know, progress from there? So, uh, you know, what in, uh, international tournaments did you play in? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, from from start to finish. So, I I started in two thousand five. I finished in twenty eighteen. Um, 
and I played in in that time. I played in seven European Championships, three World Cups, one World Games, and two Paralympic Games. And I think, I think in the end, I ended up with like 127 caps and 20 goals. So wow. as a defender, I was as a defender, I was quite happy with the 20 goals. Um, but <laughs> but it took me it took me a long time to like actually become half decent at the game. Really, you know, a lot of practice. I moved away to Worcester in 2007. Um, to to kind of further my studies, but also because there was uh, other people at the time receiving coaching in between training sessions, which was unheard of. Um, so I, I joined Aj Ahmed and uh, Lee Great Batch at Worcester Uni, and then later Will Norman. Uh, we formed a, a Worcester team while we were there, and so sort of, that's when I really started to progress. Was that kind of two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, playing and again coached regularly. Um, and also, obviously, learning uh, as we went along with internationals. But I, I think twenty goals as a defender is pretty impressive. So you know, something I, I'm going to have to sort of research is, you know, whether you're England's highest scoring defender across you know any form of football, and I mean like the men's, women's, amputee football, all sorts. Because you know, I reckon you must be close. Maybe, maybe, yeah. But then, then we got Dan English in England squad now, who's probably scored forty odd goals. Some of them as a defender. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't definitely sort of be hard pushed to say I was, I was up there. But uh, you never know, you never know. But yeah, I was lucky in the last couple of years of the sport I played. Um, they changed the size of the goals, so they made the goals thirty centimeters bigger on each side. So uh, I, I kind of racked up uh, seven or eight goals in the last couple of years just for that rule change. <laughs> um, and uh, were you in the squad for London twenty twelve? I was, yeah, uh, to the Beijing games and the London twenty twelve games. And what was the your experience uh, like at both of those Paralympics? Oh, amazing! Absolutely amazing. Looking back on it, um, you know, I'd say because. I'd say that probably you know, London was probably my career highlight, but like while you're in it, it's very hard to say that because you know you're so disappointed to miss out on a on a medal as we did. Um, but you know, Beijing obviously huge, playing in front of you know the biggest crowds we would have played in front of until that point, so fifteen hundred people. Um, huge, great Paralympic village, amazingly interesting country. Um, going into Beijing City itself, my my mum and my stepdad came out to watch, so brilliant, brilliant sort of to be part of. Uh, and then London, obviously, you know, home games, playing in front of over 3,000 people around a five-a-side court. You know, for, for a week, people are actually asking for your autograph. You know, they're disappointed when they find out you're not David Weir or uh, <laughs> Johnny <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, so you know, for for a week, we were somebody. And we were, you know, very close to, to getting into a medal match. But, you know, again, cliche, the, the, the margins are tight. Um, and then off the back of uh, London 2012, where, you know, people could see we were... We were improving. We were awarded UK Sport funding, and that's when the, the team were able to go go professional and sort of further their dreams to becoming you know sort of medalists and and, and professional footballers um, through UK Sport funding and then through FA contracts. Brilliant, and I think I think that's <coughs> because it's um, still within any form of disability sport. I think the f- being able to be a full time athlete is still quite rare. Um, so that must have, you know, been an amazing opportunity, and obviously, really given you guys the chance to, you know, focus on your football and, and really, you know, become as as good as you can. Um, I also understand there was um, a pitch bill. It must have been around 2014 um, at St George's Park, specifically for blind football. So is that where you guys would then train? Yes, yeah. So we trained at St George's Park from 2013 and used one of the used the community pitches, and they put the sideboards there. But then from 2014, they built a purpose, purpose-built pitch, uh, which was very nicely named the Tony Larkin pitch, because that, that definitely deserves to be recognised, Tony's influence on the game. Um, Tony, unfortunately, uh, wasn't kept on as coach to, um, to bring the team into the professional era, which I always, I always maintain was a mistake. Um, and so to have him honoured with the, the name of the pitch, we actually had a, um, a match from the current England team against England legends, which Tony coached. Um, I think we might have only snuck it one nil or something like that. So yeah, the old, uh, the old master brought out all his, uh, all his tricks on the day to try and uh, spoil the party. But yeah, it was, it was really great to have that named. And that's where the guys um, train now. They have internationals there. Um, and, and the, and the women's team now, the newly formed women's blind team now train on that pitch as well. Brilliant. Um, and when you were playing for England, what um, support staff did you have access to? 
Uh, like during tournaments and camps, you have a lot. Um, sometimes too many. But um, so you know, you'd have a doctor, you'd have a physio. Uh, towards the end, you'd have sports scientist, sports psychologist, um, chief towel folder. No, um, so it was, a, it was all <laughs> kinds of people. The goalkeeper coach, which again was was a huge part of. Um, you know, sort of our our development as a team, having Tony Elliott to, to coach our goalkeepers, and before that, um, Paul as well. So there was there was a lot of uh, emphasis put on improving our goalkeepers to be, um, I suppose, technically and tactically better, um, and it really showed because you know, like England have had the best goalkeeper at the the last three tournaments. Dan James before that was probably the best goalkeeper in the world. Um, so, so having that, that kind of uh, purely goalkeeper-led coaching was was a really important added bit of uh, added bit of um, I suppose experience and know-how. So yeah, there was always a lot of support staff. But that was the one criticism I'd have was when you went away from camp, you know, how much access do you get to those support staff afterwards? You know, you've got you're on camp for three or four days a month, and then the rest of it on your own devices. But while you're in camp, you've got all the gear. And um, obviously, when so when you were away from uh, you know the England team and, and you were having to train in your own time, what would a typical week uh, you know for you sort of consist of uh, when you were sort of you know building up to a major tournament? Um, it would generally be somewhere between eight and twelve training sessions, depending on what your workload was. Uh, when I got when I got a bit older, I was definitely sort of closer to eight sessions than I was twelve. Um, but you'd probably be doing something with the ball four or five days a week, um, sort of doing very monotonous but very crucial dribbling uh, and technical drills. So like, like a typical day for me would look like getting up at 5.30 in the morning, walking to the gym 45 minutes, doing 45, 50 minutes of technical work in the sports hall on my own. Um, putting a Bluetooth speaker at one end, just dribbling end to end, end to end, end to end. Um, probably doing about two and a half, three kilometers worth of dribbling, then just pinging the ball against the wall, left foot, right foot, controlling it, doing drag backs and all sorts of ball manipulation stuff. Then getting in the gym, doing some doing some physical stuff, whether that be you know some running intervals or my actual S and C program. Um, so I probably do that three days a week. So that would be like six sessions of that. And then chucking in the odd distance run or uh, or yoga session, um, or even sort of uh, more physical um, kind of high intensity uh, training as well. So yeah, it's um, pretty 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 big workload, but the you know, the technical stuff was the most crucial bit. And you mentioned earlier, London twenty twelve was uh, one of your highlights. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, you played in quite a lot of major tournaments. Uh, so, what were your other highlights? Um, you know, and how did you fare in some of those major tournaments? Like this really hard question for me to answer the career highlights thing, and I think looking back on it, looking because you know, I always give myself a bit too much of a hard time. I think when I was playing, especially when when you don't win a tournament, because that was always my aim and hope was to win win a you know an international gold medal at either European World or, or Paralympic level, and never never managed to achieve that. I didn't manage to achieve a Paralympic medal. So if I look back and look less extrinsically at it, you know, career highlights for me would be representing. England at, uh, at a, you know, at a Paralympic game, sorry, Great Britain at Paralympic Games in London and, and a home crowd playing, playing a World Cup in front of a home crowd in 2010, um, becoming England captain in 2013, the first captain in the professional era, did that for, for three years. Um, and then sort of, sort of, again, looking less, uh, less extrinsically looking, you know, when I, I, I sort of, Quit my England contract in uh, in 2017 because I had to get a full time job to pay the bills to have three kids. Um, I was able to still train at a very very good level. Um, was playing and coaching in the Czech Republic, um, and essentially put myself at the mercy of the FA and said, "Look, I, I'm not going to be at camps, but if you want to select me for the Euros, you can." And I got selected for that Euros and probably played my. It's probably had my best all-round performance in a tournament in 2017 while working full-time and sort of not part of the FA programme. That's not to criticise the FA, that's just a, something I'm really proud of, the fact I was able to to manage that workload uh, and come back and enjoy my football to the point where I had my best ever performance just by probably not having it as my as my primary focus. So, so yeah, looking back, those are my sort of 
highlights of my career, really, just just being part of those sort of moments. And as you mentioned, um, you know, you were obviously lucky enough to uh, be able to captain uh, England for a few years as well. So, you know, how did it feel when you were asked to take over that role? It was, ma- yeah, a massive honour. It was a huge honour. And it was done in a very quite quite democratic way, actually. So the head coach at the time, the one that sort of uh, preceded Tony Larkin was Graham Keeley, who coached the England uh, partially sighted team for many years. And he had a new group of players that he wasn't really familiar with. And I think he pretty much sort of went around the squad saying, who do you think should be should be captain? And I think, you know, it was pretty, I think it was pretty unanimous, not to blow my trumpet, but most people sort of thought I should I should be the one that, that led that team. And yeah, it was a huge honor you know, to have that selected by your peers and then obviously have the coach confirm that was 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 really uh, really a huge honor for me and you know it was more than just you know being the one that wears the armband does the coin toss it was about you know driving standards and training and sort of trying to be that that one that leads by example um and yeah it was it was, it was a huge moment for me and what would what do you think your teammates would uh, say you were like as a captain on the pitch um, you know were you as you say someone that would you try to lead by example on the pitch as well were you very vocal I was very vocal and probably too vocal at times. And looking back on that, I think a lot of people would say I was very harsh. Um, and I would say I would probably agree with them. And there's some things I look back on regret and the way I maybe spoke to people and treated people. But in the moment, I was a very instinctive person, probably too much of that old school um, fiery mentality as, as, a, as, a, as a skipper. Uh, but yeah, I was very vocal. I was always a sort of big communicator anyway. Uh, and sort of too passionate when I crossed that white line, but, but yeah, I think people would people would probably look back and say, yeah, he was loud, he was noisy, um, and uncom- <laughs> uncompromising. I, I think, as we mentioned earlier, though, obviously one of the you know key and biggest crucial skills within any VI sports is communication. Um, so I would, you know, I think when I'm a captain aside, you know, I'm quite vocal and. I'd always rather my skipper was always very vocal and, and, you know, I'd rather them shout at me than not say anything at all. So I don't think, you know, being vocal, especially in a, you know, VI sport is, is a bad thing. I think, you know, uh, it's, it's a really crucial skill to have. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you're probably being too harsh on yourself. <laughs> oh, I definitely, it's, it's just about learning, learning what people receptive receptive to and not. And I think sort of looking back on that, if I'd had my time again, I would have taken more time to understand people as individuals, understand what what they you know what they are receptive to in those kind of pressure moments than than others. So rather than trying to just go right, this is my way and this is the only way, I would have I would have definitely dealt with things better. But that was the only way I knew at that time. Uh, and it, you know, it, again, I think this stuff I I know I take from that into my coaching career now. But well, I, I think that's good to hear. I think, um, you know, as you said, it's a lesson you've learned from your own playing career and, and something you can take into your coaching and, and pass on to your players. So, you know, uh, I think as humans, we all learn from our experiences. So, uh, you know, the fact you're aware of that is, is you know, a really good thing. Um, so obviously, uh, as you mentioned, you're now involved with uh, coaching in Bayern football as well. So can you tell me a bit about um, how you first got involved with the coaching side? Yeah, I got involved with coaching so informally when we kind of set up the uh the Worcester blind football team back in 2008 and just kind of you know sort of led sessions if our coach Dave wasn't there or or just kind of part of bringing youngsters through and helping them at the same time I was trying to learn the game as well so I probably should have just kept nose out but um so formally um I kind of got involved in 2016 when again I kind of just decided to leave my my FA contract and started um, playing regularly for a club in the Czech Republic called Avoy Avoy Beno. Um again a, a team that I'd helped in the early days when they um, were just starting blind football in 2009. They came to Worcester and did a, a workshop with us um, and stayed friends with uh, with them ever since. Um, and my way to keep fit in that kind of period of not playing for England uh, was to was to go and play in these tournaments in the Central European League so I'd go off to Budapest and Krakow and Prague and Brno and play in these tournaments so admittedly a much lower level um, but I got involved with with assistant coaching the team there and sort of helping them to slightly change the way they played and approach the game um, and, and really enjoyed it and found I had a kind of natural aptitude for it uh, not just technically but the tactical side of the game and organisationally so, so yeah I kind of got involved with that there and and then after kind of 2019, when I f- played my last tournament for for 
Avoy Bonneau. I didn't know it was going to be my last tournament at the time. Um, kind of fell in love, fell out of love with the game, really. And then obviously COVID came. Um, and then sort of last year, got back involved with coaching through um, Albion in the community for Brighton, Brighton's community wing. Paul Brackley, um, sort of, I kind of started talking to Paul about putting a, a team in the National League, uh, in the National Cup competitions. Um, so, yeah, we, we entered the team in the National Cup. We got to the final, um, which then qualified us for the Disability Cup, which was on BT Sport this year. Um, and then we sort of entered the team in the league um, for the first time this year. So that was, that's been sort of my, um, I suppose, uh, most formal coaching role in this country and then last August I got involved with the Indian national team through uh, through Sunil Matthew who's the head coach there initially just doing some stuff online with them sort of analyzing some previous matches talking to them about match preparation about things that you can do in their home area and then that kind of organically grew into me going out to Oman with them last year then we brought them to London this year uh, sorry to the UK this year to play three matches against the England development team at St. George's Park. Um, and then um, to the Asian Championships this year that I've just come back from in uh, in Kerala, um, where we finished seventh out of 10, um, which wasn't a great overall performance, uh, overall kind of result, but the performances have, have really improved. And it was just a great experience to be part of and also to be part of the um, the women's development, uh, women's game developing over in India as well in Asia. So we've got the India women's team that will be at the World Cup in or the Ipsa World Games in Birmingham next year. So yeah, it's been I've been very lucky that I've had a few very you know sort of um, important people in my life like Paul, uh, like Dave Mycock at Worcester, like um, like Sunil who have been champions of of uh, blind coaches like myself to uh, to come forward and kind of use our lived experience to um to to uh, I suppose benefit the um the next generation of players that's brilliant and um obviously uh, in india you know there's no doubt that cricket is the biggest sport uh, out there so um has it been challenging for the team to you know sort of coerce players into coming to play for the blind football team or actually is is the game you know quite popular out there it's becoming very, very popular. Um, and to be honest, at the moment, the Indians are doing everything um, from fundraising, uh, everything themselves. And um, it doesn't, at the moment, there is no real government, formal government support. Um, so everything's done from, you know, being, being grown organically, if you will. And yeah, you are up against cricket, um, but it's also a huge country. So uh, with a you know, 1.4 billion population, so you know we've we, we've got a a lot of untapped talent that we haven't managed to uh, to find yet. There's 30 states there, and we're only actually it's probably probably picking from players from six or seven states at the moment. Um, so once once we grow the talent pools in those those states for girls and boys, um, I think we could be you know a real force uh, in the world game. But it's going to take 10 or 15 years. Uh, and maybe some government support, but but what the guys have achieved so far is um, is absolutely incredible. And ho- hopefully, I'm just there to add a little bit of little bit of kind of game now, so a little bit of understanding about what it means to be professional and what it means to you know be in tournament play. Um, but yeah, we we I think uh, we've got at the moment we've got about five or six hundred lads to pick from, and maybe two hundred girls. Um, and that will that will only increase now over the next few years. I mean that that sounds like a bigger talent pool than uh, active players in England at the moment. Is that right? Well, it's probably a bigger talent pool than there is in Europe at the moment. So you know, like in in England, you know, you're probably looking at a pool of maybe fifty players, and then that's including female players um, because of, we've got a mixed gender game in in the, in the UK. Um, although there's two in separate international teams, but you know, like Japan, Japan are one of the best teams in the world, probably ranked seventh or eighth in the world. They've only got a player pool of uh, maybe 50 or 60 players. And again, it's just about how things work socially, you know, in, in, in the UK, uh, and, and obviously Western Europe, and then over in Japan, you know, medically things are more advanced than they are, and you know, conditions are treated and picked up earlier. But in India, you know, a lot of our, our, our lads and girls are 
um, are blind due to just, just things that can be altered, you know, or spotted, you know, like cataracts, like uh, malnutrition while in pregnancy. Those can, you know, a lot of the blindness is caused by that. So, so socially, there, there's a reason why there's more blind people in in India or proportionally than there is uh, anywhere else. So, yeah, it's terrible in a way why that happens. But for the for the good of the game, you know, for the good of the sport and the betterment of their lives, blind football is a great vehicle for them to have. Well, it, it's great to hear how you know well it's taken off over there. Um, and uh, have you done your coaching badges? And uh, you know, if so, to what level? <laughs> I've got the FA Level One badge, and I've got the FA Coaching Disabled Footballers badge. Um, and I wanted to do more at the time, so I got my FA Level One back in 2013. Um, and I wanted to go on and more. And our performance director at the time said to me, "It's impossible." Just basically, just dead, just dead, dead, and ended, ended, ended it really. Um, so that was the kind of attitude to, I suppose, blind coaching at the time, really, or, or blind coaches at the time. I'm sure things are changing now, and I think the FA are looking at adapting the level two course and adapting um, like the kind of UA for B style course to be more, uh, I suppose, accepting of difference. You know, when it comes to the blind game and the uh, wheelchair football, you know, the power chair game, they're very different to all the other um, adapted football um, versions out there. So I think things are coming to a point where they're realizing that that needs to change, but. Yeah, I would love to be able to work through my badges, but I don't think it's imperative to me that I do do it. But it would be great from a an accessibility and inclusion point of view for other people to be able to go through that formalised coaching structure and be able to go, yeah, no, I'm a level two, I'm a level three coach, um, and I want to, you know, further my further my um, my coaching qualifications. But I think that's where the attitudes in Western Europe are far different to where they are in, in Asia and South America, where club teams uh, and some international teams in, in Asia and uh, South America are actually coached by totally blind coaches. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I guess as you were saying earlier, you know, sort of some some parts of, say, Western Europe or maybe America, Japan, whatever, maybe a medically more advanced in some aspects but then uh you know with our attitudes towards you know, fine coaches we're way far behind <laughs> some of the lesser developed countries so um yeah it's, it's it's interesting and and i think one thing um you know we hear a lot about and rightly so is you know the need to get more uh you know women into certain positions in the game and people from ethnic minorities but we very rarely hear the discussion about getting people, you know, with disabilities involved in the game, um, which and and I think there's that's probably the same in all aspects of society, and I think that's something that needs to change a lot. And one one thing I've noticed, you know, uh, you know, kind of on your Twitter feed is, is you're not afraid of kind of you know voicing your opinion and and things, and I think that's really commendable because I think you know um, in the VI community we need more people like that, um, you know, to uh, you know express opinions and to help uh, you know make change. And I think what you're doing, you know, you're probably the only uh, sort of, you know, blind football coach I'm aware of. Um, uh, but, you know, I think it's great because I think hopefully people will hear your story and it will inspire youngsters to, you know, to do the same and realise, you know, what, what is possible. So, you know, I think it's a very commendable thing that, that you're doing. Um, so... I, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. And again, it's, you know, it's only, I've only been able to, you know, achieve this level of experience as a coach, you know, hands-on experience as a coach by having cited people to, to champion me, you know, like Paul Brackley at, I'll be in the community, you know, like Sunil over in India. Um, that you know, it, you know, that everybody needs allies. Whether that's you know, whether that's our trans community, our gay community, you know, our you know, our, our sort of people of color, whatever it might be. Everybody needs uh, a champion to begin with in order to further that conversation. But I think things are a different attitude-wise in in Europe because of the coaching positions are quite often held, you know, at professional level. So if you're involved at the FA level or uh, over in Germany or in France, you know those those are coveted positions that are paid, um, and I think it's going to be very hard for sight people um, to 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 want to give that up to somebody who's who's disabled. You know, people want people want equality, but you know, how much equality do they do they want people to have? You know, so um, again, I'm very realistic. I, I don't think I'll I'll ever have the overall ability um to to be the head coach of a game where somebody oversees the game and be able to sort of give information from the side because there's certain things you can and can't do and i actually gave it a go over in india 
against China for the best team or the team that went on to win it. And we were 3-0 down at halftime. But I was quite pleased that we were 0-0 at uh, eight minutes. But there were certain bits of information that the players needed from me uh, and also somebody who doesn't speak Hindi very well um, that they, they, were, they were lacking. But yeah, again, Sunil, Sunil was like, yeah, go on, you do that. Do that game. Do that half. And I... I sacked myself at halftime, uh, but, <laughs> but, but but there are some great things that that uh, blind coaches can do, and that is understanding how things feel in the moment, what it takes to to go and sort of improve your skills day by day. Um, you know, understanding what things sound like in the heat of the moment in the game, and just just little pointers, just little little bits that you can add on to something. You know, like a head coach has got to have that that overall feel of the game, but I feel the blind coach can can add something technically and also from a psychological point of view that uh, that a sighted coach probably never could. And uh, what's been your highlight as a coach so far? Uh, I I would say being involved in uh, out in India in um, in Kerala um, for that for the Asian Championships and being a coach at a major tournament and seeing the improvement in the boys and and obviously seeing the girls for the first time over there. Um, seeing what it means to them sort of you know even even learning like part of the national anthem you know, like being able to so, so uh, be, you know be a be a coach at a major tournament and and um you know celebrate goals going in and sort of celebrate wins and yeah i think that was my that that's my coaching career highlight so far because i know how much it's changed some of our players lives out there um and hopefully continue continue to do so and uh, what are your coaching ambitions for the future uh, well, for the near future, it's to um, to win the national league with Brighton. Uh, we're we're sort of uh, it's not the be all and end all to win that trophy, but for us in our first season, um, sort of bringing players together for the first time and sort of coming up with our own signature way of playing um, and kind of uh, you know culturally as a group, if we can if we can win the league this year, that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, so for me, that would be a feather in my cap, I suppose, for 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 a coach. But you know, for the rest of our coaches as well, who are, who are a very young, new team to the game as well. So for us collectively, that would be a great thing. Um, and again, it's just to just to grow with uh, with this India team and see what difference that we can we can make to people's lives and change the game for for the men and women's teams out there. And and next year we've got the the world championships for for uh, men and women but our india team have qualified uh, as uh, from from asia with the women so to be there and sort of help them through their first major major tournament will uh, will again be a be a huge moment but and again i don't really have any massive aspirations to to coach uh, you know internationally uh, in this country or um, or anywhere else in europe again i think attitudes need to change um, in order for that to happen, in order for people to think that someone like me can make a difference. Um, so I'm just going to carry on doing what I do with India and, and, and Brighton and uh, enjoy it along the way. And uh, what lessons did you uh, learn as a player that you try to pass on to the players that you now coach? Um, I think the stuff that I learned as a player that I bring into, um, bring into to my experience and my sort of uh, leadership styles of coaches just to help the guys understand the importance of practicing the basics uh, and falling in love with doing the really boring mundane um unfashionable horrible stuff that nobody sees you know nobody's nobody's putting on instagram you know like the uh, horrible sort of interval run they have to do or the um or maybe they are um but you know the, um, the, you know, the sort of endless hamstering up and down a sports hall dribbling a ball until your sort of calves fall off you know that the, the you know i i try to impress upon them the importance of being able to do the basics well under pressure um and while fatigued uh in order to be able to, to kind of further their game really and that's something i you know we we definitely left the indian lads with at the end of the tournament was our basic skills need to be better. Um, and again, I was somebody that came from a background of having absolutely no skill or no ability and was able to build myself up to a reasonable level just by having a bloody-minded attitude to, I'm going to practice this and practice this and practice this until I'm not rubbish anymore. Um, and, and these guys have got way more natural talent than I ever had. So if I can if I can impart that kind of uh, work ethic and, and, uh, and, and influence on them and Bring a little bit of game, game nous and intelligence and cuteness into that as well. 
And uh, then I think that's the kind of stuff I brought from my playing days, really. And what do you think your strengths are uh, as a coach currently? And what are the areas that you're trying to develop? I think my strength as a coach, again, is very similar to the ones as a player. I'm quite instinctive. Um, I kind of read the game, read the game very well. Um, not not as well as I'd like at times, um, but certainly from a playing point of view, when I was on the pitch, I was always very tactically aware of what was happening and why and how to put things right. Um, and I think that uh, that's that's what I bring to to the Indian um, setup now, and obviously the Brighton setup. Um, and tact- yeah, tactically, I think I'm I'm pretty sound and. And also, I just bring a bit of fun and enjoyment to it. You know, as a player, I probably didn't bring as much fun as I wanted to the game. But now it's, you know, it's have a laugh, have fun, but be serious when you're going to be, need to be serious. Um, and yeah, I think just just those kind of human elements, I think, is what I bring from from my playing days into my coaching. And uh, which uh, coaches and managers in the professional game do you uh, admire and why? Uh, as an Arsenal fan, it's very hard not to admire Arteta. You know, he's a bit, He's a bit uh, unique and passionate and sort of not everybody's cup of tea, but but the way he's kind of built the culture of that team, kind of got rid of people that weren't uh, willing to do the stuff required to be part of that culture and that team and the way that team was going to develop technically. Someone like Arteta is definitely, uh, someone like me is uh, um, certainly a, an influence uh, and you can't not look past people like uh, Pep who have uh, been innovators and change the way the game's been played over the last five or six years by the way builder plays improved structures of you know how people play play the game through the thirds you know all that all those kind of things are, are, are huge influences to me and I want to be able to be a coach that has a probably a unique stamp on the game um, and a, a unique style of playing um, that that can be innovated um, so yeah I think those two are the, are the ones for me. Awesome. Um, and go back to your playing days. Who was the best player you played with, and who was the best player you played against? Oh, the best player I played with. It's it's you know it's a really an easy answer to say, but Dave Clark's the best naturally gifted footballer I've ever played with. Um, just you know, two footedness. Always admire people with uh, with 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 two feet. Um, but just his running with a ball, his ability to just control, stop, turn fire goals in for, with all different surfaces of his foot from different angles and shapes was was just unbelievable and, and considering you know he had a such a a high pressure job with little access to training and time to train he was just the most naturally gifted player um i've um i've ever played with and you know, the, the only other person who didn't have as long an international career as uh, as he probably should have again along that naturally gifted lines was um was darren cook um, who played a lot of cricket, um, but again, naturally two-footed, read the game, brilliant player, just um, just kind of fell out of the sport probably at the wrong time, but was really, really naturally gifted. And the best player I've ever played against, head and shoulders above, was uh, Ricardo Alves, Ricardinho, uh, who's still playing, captain in the Brazil team now. But he was like the best player in the world at 17 in 2006 when I first saw him, and he's continued to evolve and change his game also just the most unbelievable technician um and just pretty much plays every minute there is on the pitch and christ knows how many score goals he scored internationally now but yeah he's he's for me the 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 best that's ever played the game and probably will ever play the game and if no one's ever seen him play if you type in ricardinho uh, blind football into youtube you definitely find some uh, impressive videos (laughs) unbelievable Uh, unbelievable yeah imagine imagine uh Imagine trying to play against that as a defender. I played against Brazil four times and three times they scored five goals and the other time was a nil-nil and that was probably my best, my best ever game. <laughs> <laughs> and playing against Ricardo and Jafinho is uh, is is uh, an experience unlike any other in blind football because you're just like, when are these guys going to stop? Has there ever been a game between, uh, say, you know, professional footballers who have put on, you know, sort of the blindfolds uh, and tried to have a game of blind football? You know, have, have you ever had that opportunity at all? Yeah, there was a little Channel 4 thing that we did maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that, where um, uh, Andy Cole, Danny Mills, Malcolm Christie and Kenny Sansom came along and they, they, uh, they played with us and did like a Channel 4 bit. And they did a bit in blindfolds, a bit without blindfolds. Uh, and we played indoors and yeah, they were 
they were still really, really good. And I think any any professional footballer, if they you know unfortunately lost their sight tomorrow, will be able to pick up the game. And you know the natural ball striking that they would have had from decades of playing the game would uh, would stand them in good stead. And those guys showed it on that day. I, I think one thing any sighted footballer could learn from blind footballer is the ball control. You know, if you watch, um, I mean, obviously, you know, most professional footballers have unbelievable ball control in it. But if you watch blind football, you know, every player in international level has just incredible uh, ball control. And the way you dribble with sort of keeping the ball in between the feet, uh, you know, is, is remarkable. It's, you know, it's a bit like you watch Messi and how the ball's glued to his feet. It's, you know, it's a bit like watching that, to be honest. Yeah, and you've got to be able to dribble with both feet. And that's the thing, you know, like a lot of lot of sighted players will, you know, grow up being able to get away with just being able to use the inside and outside of one foot. Uh, but obviously in blind football, if you don't dribble with two feet, they, you, you know, you're not gonna be you're not gonna be dribbling for long. <laughs> um as you mentioned, it's obviously the uh, Ibsa World Games in Birmingham next year. Um who are the uh international teams in blind football uh, you think um, that will be going to that tournament as favourites? Uh, the obvious the obvious um candidates to say for that for that um tournament will be brazil and, and argentina um but i think the gap is narrowing between the top teams and the and the and the, and the next ones below that so you've got you know, obviously england playing on home turf france will be stronger again after winning the european championships this year but then asia is a really strong region now you know coming from back from kerala watching uh, china win the final on penalties albeit um, but against Thailand, who are now coached by Argentina's ex-head coach, um, and then and then uh, Japan as well, really strong team. Um, also Iran, you know, Iran we don't see sometimes for three or four years, and then they turn up and they look like they could win anything. So there's probably there's probably six six teams who could make a final, um, but there's maybe only Brazil and Argentina. You'd think would probably come away with it, but then the game. Has um, has improved to the point where everybody's defending so well individually now and collectively that if you can take somebody to nil nil or one one, you can win a, win a tournament on uh, on penalties at the end because um, that's generally what happens in the in the last stages of a tournament. Things go quite uh, quite conservative and uh, and and the the games are won on pens. Brilliant. Well, uh, it, it would sort of be exciting for you know uh, to obviously have the tournament held in England. So if anyone's able to uh, get down to the Ipswell Games in Birmingham next year, um, you know definitely uh, definitely try and uh, watch some blind football because uh, I remember definitely. going to the uh, Paralympics in uh, London 2012. I think we had sort of tickets for one session, but then realised we could queue up to kind of get in. So I think we, uh, me and my dad spent the whole day, uh, you know, watching the blind football because we were just you know. Oh, amazing. did you? Oh, wow. Do you remember what <laughs> games you saw? Uh, I can't remember. I, we definitely saw GV play, um, but I, yeah, I honestly, I mean, ten years ago, I honestly can't tell you. Um, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Now, Bir- Birmingham will be brilliant. And obviously, the f- the first time the men's and women's tournaments are being held uh, concurrently as well. So, so there's going to be six, no, eight. There's going to be eight women's teams there. Um, so Japan and Argentina and Germany are probably the teams to look out for there, but. We'll have England and India there um, and a couple of others yet to qualify. So, yeah, I think it's going to be great to have women's blind football um, as part of it. Obviously, developmentally, it's not at the same stage as men, the men's game at the moment. It's probably where the men's game was 25 years ago. So, um, so you know, having something like this will be uh, a real sort of shot in the arm for women's blind football in, in terms of how how teams develop and uh, and grow over the next few years. Absolutely. Um, we've obviously talked a lot about uh, football, um, so I just wanted to, uh, you know, to get to know Karen a bit outside of, of football. Um, you know, uh, where do you live, and uh, what are your interests uh, outside of football? Uh, I live in Exeter, in Devon. Uh, I'm from South Wales originally, from the uh, from the Ogmore Valleys, and then Bridgend, which is a bleak place. Uh, but I live, <laughs> live in a lovely part of the world. Um, live at home with my three kids. Uh, I'm a wife. Um, so yeah, kids are 14, 11, uh, and six now. So they, they keep me busy most of the time outside of football. Um, and other interest, just reading, listening to sport, um, trying to do a little bit of writing at the moment, but it's not going particularly well. Um, and just, yeah, just, just generally sort of pottering around really. I like, still like to play a little bit and I sort of dip my toe in with playing with Brighton and, uh, and get involved with uh, with playing when I'm with with India, sort of just uh, in training sessions. 
Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm quite boring, really. I don't have any interests. I've got a day job, which keeps me pretty busy in sales. Um, uh, so aside from that, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a fairly nine to five boring life, really. <laughs> oh no! Um, you, you mentioned uh, writing. What what's, uh, sorts of things are, are you uh, are you trying to write? I'm keeping kind of journals of my coaching stuff, really, and trying to write some some experiential type things from from my playing. So it's nothing nothing exciting or fiction. Uh, but then I've just gone back and sort of done a few little chapters about um, periods in my in my playing life. Really, not no, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't sort of uh, call it autobiographical, but it's sort of just chapters of stuff that have kind of meant something to me and things I've taken things from and learned. So, yeah, but it's just, it, for me, it's just like a little bit of catharsis really to know to write stuff that was either difficult periods of my life or stuff that I should be proud of really. Awesome. Wow, that, that sounds amazing. And well, one, one thing, you know, I, I, I sort of spoke to uh, Chris Skelly quite a bit about, um, you know, on a, on a previous episode was um, sort of uh, dealing with the mental side of sight loss. Um, you know, I have RP, so, uh, you know, my sight is, deteriorated mm. over time i just wondered for you you know how uh did you deal with the, the mental side of, of sort of dealing with sight loss especially at you know quite a young age as well i probably didn't deal with it that well to be honest um i was very lucky that uh that, you know when i first lost my sight i actually became quite agoraphobic and sort of it got to the point where i was sort of scared to go out just in case i sort of bumped into people i i, I knew from when i'd lost my sight before so maybe like a bit of shame and embarrassment and also just agoraphobia so i was lucky my mum just went no you are going out and sort of forced me to go out <laughs> with my friends to the cinema and that's when i got back into blind cricket and sort of um started sort of training regularly my grandfather would take me over to nets and stuff and i got into the england squad then as a b1 in 2002 um and I think sport was the thing that did it for me, really, in terms of dealing with it. But then I probably didn't actually deal with a lot of the psychological issues associated with that until too late. And I've actually started going through therapy recently and unpacking some of that stuff along with other moments in my life. But, I, you know, if I'd had my time again, I probably would have done well, probably would have done therapy a little bit sooner, really, in order to kind of uh, talk about those kind of traumas, really, and sort of uh, head them off before... Uh, I became too much of, uh, of of a complicated person like I am now. <laughs> but I, I think, uh, you know, uh, your experiences are probably similar to myself in that, you know, when I was younger, I didn't really know how to deal with those things. You know, uh, looking back now, I remember having certain thoughts that I think, you know, I probably should have talked about. But um, I don't know about yeah. you, know, you, but when I was kind of diagnosed with my RP, it was kind of like, well, you know, you might go blind one day and, and that was it. You know, you just have to get on with life. Um, whereas I think now, you know, mental health is much more talked about and, with the in internet being such a big thing, you know, uh, there's so much more uh, information and support that's available. Um, so, you know, things are better. But I think, you know, it's commendable that, you know, you, you're, you're going through therapy and, and you're dealing with those things now. Because I think, it, you know, anyone who goes through sight loss that I know, you know, goes through, you know, challenges. And, and um, you know, so I, I think it's, you know, I think it's fairly normal. But I think hopefully now mental health and people talk about things a lot more hopefully the future generations who who go through sight loss you know things will hopefully be a bit more easier and, and I, I don't know about yourself but um you know sort of growing up there weren't really many um you know uh people to idolize that were kind of similar to yourself you know uh stevie wonder or you know was it david blunkett the, <laughs> you know, the, yeah, exactly no um, you're right, like, right. No, you know now you know you can watch the paralympics and you know you can see uh what's achievable and, and hopefully that will continue in other you know areas whether that's in music or in acting or whatever you know hopefully we'll start to see you know people from all walks of life and and, and i think that will be a, a, a big help as well yeah, definitely. I think the fact that we've got, you know, we've got kind of blind YouTube stars and TikTok stars and people like that, you know, that, you know, kind of next generation of people, I don't understand all that stuff. But, you know, if blind people are growing <laughs> up, seeing that, seeing what's achievable um, through these kind of means, it's brilliant because we didn't see that growing up, you know, ourselves. And, and for me, uh, you know, yeah, anybody that's seen me play or interacted with me over the last 20 years will probably say, yeah, he's definitely got issues. You should have sorted those out sooner. But I'm I'm a, I'm in a privileged position now where I can actually pay to go and see a therapist. But it's about having mental health provision um, in this country that works for everybody. And not everybody can go and pay for therapy. So sometimes you're waiting six months just to see somebody to, to you know, sort of give you cognitive, you know, CBT. Um, so, yeah, it's about having sort of provision of services that are that, that are accessible to all and actually fit what you need at that time. Absolutely. And uh, I guess, um, you know, one question I'd, I'd like to ask, there, there might be some people that, you know, uh, if they don't 
interact with people who are, uh, you know, have sight loss, uh, might be wondering, you know, how someone with sight loss kind of experiences, uh, you know, so you're an Arsenal fan, if you ever go to the Emirates and watch them play, you know, how, how do you uh, follow what's going on and, and how do you enjoy the atmosphere in the game? Yeah, so I have actually started going to the Arsenal a little bit. It's actually harder to get tickets now. We're uh, half decent again. So, um, but yeah, last year I went to a few games, and since I've um, stopped playing myself, you know, I try to get to to games where possible. Um, and yeah, the you know, the accessibility within the ground is very, very good. Staff are generally trained very well, and also you've got a you've got a radio headset that um, that is tuned to the in-house commentary team that describe what's going on on the pitch as well as what's going on off it and sort of talk about the you know the guys in the in the clock end with their drums and talk about you know what's going on off the pitch and what the manager's doing and yeah and, and obviously you're part of that whole atmosphere you know the songs are being sung and it's it's something I, I wasn't really into I think maybe 20 years ago and I think it was probably because I'd lost my sight and I'd probably lost the love of the game because I um, I wasn't getting the aesthetics. I wasn't being able to see the pretty passing moves and the atmosphere didn't matter much to me now. But going away with with uh, with Arsenal uh, and obviously going away to, to watch some of the Wales games in recent years, um, it's more, it, you know, it's not just about what's happening on the pitch. It's about the kind of community around it. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, really good experience. And I think people are more more helpful towards disabled fans now and there are more means out there to be able to uh, give disabled fans access to certainly the top tier football uh if people want to go so yeah i would always experience you know i'd always encourage people to go and sort of join their clubs as members or disabled members wherever that might be and um and try and access what's available to them brilliant well um kieran it's been an absolute pleasure um chatting to you and uh you know uh, obviously hearing about your your playing career and um your journey now into coaching um you know i wish you uh good luck it sounds like it's got off to a really good start with both brighton and india and uh, you know i wish you good luck with uh you know your, your coaching going forwards and uh, you know i certainly look forward to following your journey and um hopefully catch up with you again one day um to see what you've achieved again in uh another seven years time yeah, thanks, Aaron. You too, and uh, yeah, good luck with all the uh, all the VI rugby stuff. You should definitely do a couple of episodes on that because I'd be really, really keen to hear more about it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kevin. He's someone I had the pleasure of interviewing about seven years ago, and really enjoyed hearing all the amazing things he's achieved since. If you're enjoying the episodes, please follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at the Disability SP. Please also subscribe to us on whatever uh, app you use for listening to your podcasts. And as always, thank you very much for listening.